it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to Cryer Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation, our weekly sit-down with the people shaping the beer industry, and through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the business of beer and brewing. The Australian brewing landscape is evolving rapidly, and here we try and make sense of what is happening and better understand the issues shaping the industry. And we are doubling down on that today as we speak with Ben Summons and Nick Boots. Over the last few months, Stone and Wood founder Jamie Cook has retired from the business, and Ben Summons has stepped up from the managing director role at Stone and Wood into the role of CEO of the Fermentum Group of Companies, the overarching business for Stone and Wood. Nick Boots has in turn been promoted from Stone and Wood's Head of Sales to General Manager. The changing of the guard comes at a significant time for the business, as the industry faces crowding at the smaller end of the market and takeovers at the larger end. Overseas, the largest craft breweries have run into headwinds. The craft beer segment is fragmented with a rapid proliferation of styles and competition from other categories and new and emerging categories such as hard seltzer. As you'll hear, Ben and Nick have extensive careers in and out of the beer industry, including time at CUB overlapping with founders Brad Rogers, Jamie Cook and Ross Jurisic. All in all, there was lots to talk about, including the origins of craft beer and whether Stone and Wood represented a lost opportunity for CUB, the opportunities and challenges facing the business, and the challenges they face as the next generation of managers taking over from the founders. The changing beer market and staying disciplined in a time of great change. It's a great conversation about so many things that are important to every brewing business. I hope you'll find it as fascinating as I did. Ben Summons, Nick Boots, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thank you very much, Matt. Good to be here. Hello, listeners. <laughs> Basically, we've started to see, or we have seen, the generational change coming through in Stone and Wood, and we wanted to sort of talk a little bit about in the Fermentum Group. Sure. Um, wanted to talk a little bit about that. But before, with everyone knowing the founders of Stone and Wood so well, um, maybe we can just sort of start with one of the questions we uh, often throw to our guests is, uh, yeah, who is Ben Summons and who is Nick Boots? Who so the ben? hell are these guys? Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us about your, your, your careers in and out of beer. Sure. Um, probably a bit over 20 years across sales, marketing, kind of general management roles. And I think 13 or 14 of those years have been in beer. The other have been more in kind of selling snacks and chocolate and things like that. So I've made sure I've kept my vices close to my career <laughs> along the way. Yeah, and a mixture really of um, uh, of working early days um, in CUB and Got to learn the ropes a little bit there and some of the sales and marketing spaces and insights. And um, I found a broader. photo not so long ago of uh, you proudly launching Cascade Green in the mid early 2000s. Yes, indeed. That was ahead of its time, that beer, I must say. <laughs> it, it, absolutely, it was. That, that's why I, uh, it was funny. I, was, I went looking for the beer with all of the talk about sustainability. Yeah. And then suddenly there was this photo of a very young uh, looking Ben Very Sutton's young, long beer, curly actually. hair. It had Galaxy Hops in it, too. <laughs> It was, and then, then they sort of said, no, there's too much flavour in these hops, and uh, you, you ended up with another brewery that really expressed them. But uh, so, and, and Nick, how about, how about you? you- uh, not greatly dissimilar to, to Benny, actually. So, um, I mean, I fell in love with the industry 20-odd years ago um, while at uni doing ag economics uh, and started working in bottle shops uh, part-time and absolutely loved it. Uh, and um, from there, um, went into um, a buying role uh, for one of those for, for a chain very early days. And from there, I recognised, look, I want to be on the other side of the table. Uh, so, wanted to, to work for a supplier. So, yes, I had some CUB time as well for... for eight or nine years in a variety of roles in a variety of states, which was a great grounding, um, and then progressed out of there uh, into my own businesses and small family businesses where I identified um, were a nice fit for, for me and my style um, to, to utilise my skills. I, th- I think I saw on your LinkedIn profile that you were even involved in consumer insights, uh, sort of data information very early in your career. Yeah, that's right, mate. I had a couple of years with Nielsen, uh, actually, 
in there and uh, so actually Lion were one of my big clients so that was great to understand how they tick and the, the value of insights um, and then I went over to, to CUB so that was my first two mm-hmm. or three years in CUB in a, a hybrid strategy um, uh, category style role which was which was fascinating gave me a really great exposure and grounding um, and then I took that into um, into senior sales roles etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and then I stepped out into non-alcoholic beverages coconut water and the like um, for some time which was great fun um, uh, and then got pulled back in by um, by Adam Tripp Smith into Kegstar for a number of years where a number of listeners might recognize my name uh, did and, you know Adam um, beforehand or no, no I didn't no I didn't at all I just got a call one day and and, um, and uh, yeah the rest is history so I had you know nearly two two great years there and and then at a CBC a couple of years ago now uh it was very early morning. Um, uh, we had a few chats uh, over there with the Stone and Wood guys, and um, and I noticed Benny um, perusing my LinkedIn profile too one day. <laughs> so I rang him up in the guise of uh, you know being a, a key customer of mine of Kegstar. And, uh, then the conversations, well, senior Varung, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, the rest is history. So Absolutely. Ben, you haven't got that fake profile that when you're sort of scanning. No, definitely not. <laughs> that's too much. That's too much hassle. No need for that. It's funny, you know. I, I, Nick and I shared a few similarities uh, in our career path, and um, the insights and analytics piece was one of it. My my first job at CB way way back was in the insights department, and I actually rolled out the AC Nielsen program across the business and taught all the Sales and marketing guys, how to use it. it was, oh, uh, there you go. I, yeah. I didn't see that. I don't yeah. need to dig a little deeper into the LinkedIn yeah. profile. No, no, that's that's way beyond now. No, no, there's, a, there's a love of numbers in there. <laughs> With Stone and Wood, um, the, the founders famously uh, met during their time at CUB and you both spent time uh, at CUB in the early to mid-2000s. Is that how you guys connected with uh, Brad, Jamie and Ross? Was that the, the, the Yeah, the start I had worked of- with... Um, with those guys in various capacities over the years, whether it was when I was a junior marketer on some small brands uh, and Ross was the trade marketing guy in Queensland, I'd come up and harass him to give the brand some support Um, uh, or whether it was Brad who was kind of semi-mentoring me when I was doing some work on Cascade on brew development or Jamie who was kind of like a overall boss in the premium and craft team at one stage had various um, overlaps with them during that time. So they got to know each other reasonably well. How about you, Nick? Yeah, in my case, um, knew them, um, but it was more probably in a social drinking uh, capacity <laughs> than direct work capacity. But um, certainly when a workshop or a, a drinking occasion came along, we seemed to migrate to each other. Yeah, had a great relationship and I've watched the Stone and Wood evolution over the years. I still remember um, actually Jamie's whispering to me at a workshop uh, in my CUB time, oh, I'm I'm out in a few weeks. I'm off to to explore something next. And I remember thinking to myself, "Oh boy, he's got a great job. That's a bloody crazy thing to do." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the rest is history, isn't it? Mm. Uh, fortune favors the brave. So, so you guys weren't aware, like, you, there wasn't kind of like well, we're going to go off and sort of plan, oh, no. cut cut the route, and we're going to come back for you guys later. <laughs> no. Not that well planned, mate. <laughs> no, not at all, mate. I um, I think. Around the time that Jamie left, I left to go to Craft Foods, Cadbury, and I went off there for several years. And so I, they were on, I was aware of their journey and loosely connected on Facebook. And I think I think the year before I went over to Malaysia for four years, I had a holiday in Byron with, with my wife and rode my bike out to the breweries to say good day to Brad. And I left with a six-pack of Pacific Ale, which I drank at Watergo. So. <laughs> And, and a job not, or was meant no, to be. No, no, no. It was just perhaps that was uh, just a seed that was planted. But and I was happily on a different journey at the time. And it was just purely coincidental that uh, I came back on their radar uh, when they were looking for someone to join and, and lead Stone and Wood a few years back. Okay. So even though um, you, you weren't part of the initial plan and it wasn't even on the horizon at that stage, you were all at CUB at the same time. And you, you're now... With working with the largest independent uh, craft brewery in, in, in the country, was that a missed opportunity for a business like CUB? You know, to, was it their loss that this talent moved on and didn't stay on and, and apply these skills internally? Or you know, what, what, what's I think CUB is an employer in, in in Melbourne and Sydney and beyond. You know, attracts a lot of great talent and they come and go. And they still, I work with and met with a lot of great people when I was there and learn a lot from a lot of good people as well. So um, it's one of those places that does attract people 
uh, and retain a lot of good people. But, you know, not everyone is aligned with every organisation that they spend time at. So um, I can't speak on behalf of the individuals except for myself. I was looking for broader horizons and experiences. Um, I wanted to work overseas. I wanted to work for different categories and different channels altogether. So that ultimately drove me down a different path um, and probably helped me get the job that I landed today um, to diversify a little bit. But maybe the lost opportunity was not seizing the craft opportunity at that time. Um, and but that's understandable. It's a huge business with lots of different priorities and, you know, it has to make sure it pays the bills through some of the big the big categories first. Yep. Nick? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've certainly subscribed to those thoughts that there's wonderful opportunities in those big businesses, regardless of, of which one it is. Um, and I think in the time in your career, you have roles in different businesses um, and, and you recognise it's time to move on and you take, take the good bits uh, and you leave behind um, the learnings that you don't want to apply in the future. And I think we've been really fortunate, you know, I Nestle and CUB and Benny, um, you know, Craft and, and CUB. So we've been able to to take the really rich stuff um, that we were lucky enough to learn and the opportunities we got in those businesses, um, and then apply them uh, into into Stone and Wood. But you know, in Jamie's words, you know, leave behind some of the corporate baggage that that goes with some of those businesses, um, and just you know, use the use the good stuff. I, I think as a as a young Ger beer writer. I don't think I was ever a young beer writer. I was too. It came too late in my career for that. But as a as a younger beer writer, full of sort of piss and vinegar and hot air and things like that, um, I used to be very critical of seeing the big breweries. And you'd see this procession of marketers come through. Um, they'd leave Unilever or Cadbury Schweppes or um, spend a bit of time in one of the brewing companies and then move on. And I always felt that. There was never an understanding, and I feel a bit guilty because mm. you guys would have been <laughs> sort of oh. you know, lumped into an amorphous Don't group. Don't take it personally, mate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't, but it was an observation um, and, uh, and one that I'm critical of myself these days. But the, the, the criticism was that beer seems to be the sort of category, and particularly craft beer, as we saw the potential, the early potential for craft beer, um, you almost needed to have that empathy with with the the, the the product itself to really drive it ahead and I'm just picking up on mm. something you said Ben that you know maybe we're a little bit slow to to realize the potential for, for craft beer do you think that that was the size of the business or do you think it was that you had people that were very talented marketers but weren't necessarily invested in a particular product and wanted to move units as opposed to to you know cultivate something for for, for the future I think on the category side of things, the rock stars were the big brands uh, with the big bucks and everyone wanted to work on those uh, and there was less passion and um, involvement uh, with what's inside the bottle on those sort of brands and there was a lot a big merry-go-round of packaging changes and sexy ads and those kind of things and I think and and don't don't get me wrong like I just, for some reason the do you remember the car chase ad for um Yes, I where, Carlton Draft. The Carlton Draft, and, and they sort of in, in the bank, and it was it was all of the tropes from police chase movies, mm. but guys running down the street holding a beer, and like even now, I still think it was such a brilliant ad. Mm. But my criticism back then was that you know CB was that they, they if they could sell the ads, that would have been the best well, business I, I because th- they were better at that I, than I, they I were. Think at- it, I think it was kind of the peak of one of the themes we've talked about before, where I think over the journey in the last few decades there was a a steady commoditization of the beer category and a, and a bit of the soul sort of evacuated out of it. And, you know, it got driven by marketers and it was all about who could shout the loudest with the coolest ad and the sexiest packaging and those kind of things and it, it morphed that way. And I think the emergence and the opportunity in craft was zigzagging the other way um, and that was what ultimately the guys took advantage of. But I also pick up on a point you made earlier around the procession of marketers. I, I think it's, you know, I, I was there during some of those times and you know, I lamented the, the the turnover that goes through those those businesses and there's no one there to steward the brands, you know. It's a, it's a huge stable of brands, great brands, and not every one of them is going to get as much oxygen and care and attention as it possibly needs. And so, but then yeah. you've also got the situation that that I think very strongly happened with Crown Lager, where you had 
one marketer passing on to the next marketer and you had this Chinese whispers of the history of the brand and they're talking about this is the most important brand in Australia. It can happen. And they actually didn't even know the history of the brand themselves. It just became this completely that, made up point. thing. That's the point. You get a high rate of turnover of the perhaps the people who might be working on the brands but the people overseeing them mm. and um, there's less perhaps attention and care on stewarding those brands and so it can zigzag and flop about and be inconsistent and that's gradually eats away at consumer connection and uh so yeah i you know having lived it and seen it and also being someone who's passionate about brands i kind of lament that that can happen to such good brands within a certain business and why it's great to be a stone and wood where you kind of go no we're just long term looking at the future and let's slowly nurture this um you know as our as our thing and not one of many it, it's interesting you talked about the um commoditization of beer and craft beer was a zig mm. It was almost that commoditization of craft of, of mainstream beer that made craft beer possible in a way that it was almost a re- reaction against that. Mm, um, agreed. And, and, and I look at Germany, for example, which has always had they've never had a huge diversity of beer, but they've always had much more diversity and many more brands um, to to provide that choice. So there doesn't seem to be that same rebellion against something to, to drive it. a craft there, beer. Movement. There, there were there were some you know pioneering few who. Who really championed that? Perhaps the drinkers didn't know that's what they wanted yet, but it's thanks to the pioneers that who brought it to life, um, and, and folks like you guys who talked about it and raised its profile. That then all of a sudden the drinkers go, "Yeah, this is this is what I want." Yeah, and there's you know there's probably a, a generic uh, evolution of some of the liquid as well, um, uh, as well as some of the branding. So then ultimately you got that rebellion. People saying, "Hey, I want to try." Try something different, um, and that promiscuity in their in the basket of beers they they drank each week um, increased, increased, and um, yeah, that has born seven hundred seven hundred breweries in Australia, and you know, still growing very strongly. The other thing that uh, Ben talked about was with the zigging. It reminded me straight away of something that uh, Jamie would have said to me maybe eight ten years ago um, that, that the big brewers. It was just like match racing was was the analogy he gave uh, mm-hmm. with sailing. You know, one tax, the other tax, and you, you because you never want to give the other one a potential advantage, and so you automatically follow. Are, are we starting to see that a little bit in the craft beer space as well? You know, as it becomes more crowded, um, brewers don't want to let a potential opportunity go, and so you, you're just sort of almost seeing a school of fish all darting the same way. In a, a little bit, uh, I think they're different games though. The the one you've mentioned, you know, CB and Lion Nathan, you know, long time, powerful competitors in a largely duopoly scenario. They had, there was important to, you know, who's got the greatest market share, who's winning versus each other, red versus blue kind of thing. And um, that's, I think, the reference point there. But I do see um, a little bit of it play out in, in the good beer space, not by trying to one-up each other, just by I think everyone looks across the shores to the States and what's, what are the trends and let's, everyone just sort of copies what everyone else is doing. You know, No one's doing something completely different and going out in a big, wide, wide open space. It's like, okay, well, they're going that way. Let's all go that way. Turning to Stone and Wood now, looking at the business you've had, uh, you guys have both stepped in as the, the, the founders after 10 years have gradually, they've had a very orderly transition to, to, to the next generation of um you know, managers or, or sort of uh, custodians of, of the brand. Mm-hmm. How is how involved have you guys been in that? Have you been uh, active participants in it, or has it been very much? Come on, guys, we'll uh, bring you in. Yeah, it's been steady, uh, and um, it's kind of unfolded over time. So, uh, I think I joined as the managing director three and a half years ago, uh, and um, we didn't know at the time that Jamie had a plan to. Um, step back at 60 and get into non-exec duties so um, but through that time was to essentially you know get me across the business and intimate with the business and and potentially one day step into the fermentum role after that so I think it's been slow and steady and at the right point in time um, uh, you know I've been steadily more involved across fermentum matters um, such that when Jamie um, put the cue in the rack in December (laughs) I was easily able to pick it up and start playing. Did you feel like it was a little bit like a Survivor where you were being set a series of challenges <laughs> to prove yourself and get points over the last couple of years? Oh, and sometimes it was like Survivor. I mean, it was, it's quite funny, you know, like you, you tell some good stories around stepping into a, you know, a founder-led business and the three of them are fantastic guys and so supportive all the way along. Um, but there's that interesting transition period where 
you know, we're learning how to dance on the dance floor and you're stepping on each other's toes and, you know, which way do we go? Which, you know, it's, you know, there's growing pains working all that out, but all in, all with good spirit and good intent and um, great support for each other through that journey. How about you, Nick? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm very lucky. You know, I had, I've had nearly 18 months in the business now. And, and as I said, knowing the founders for, for 12, 13 odd years and watching the progression of Stone and Wood over that time too, um, it's given me a great opportunity to, to, to understand the business both from afar and then actually get inside and get into the DNA over the last 18 months. Uh, so, you know, I came on board knowing succession was, um, in the future, um, but um, there was certainly no um, no promises and no guarantees. It was here's an opportunity um, for this role today, and um, see where the business goes in the future. And if you're in the right place at the right time, then um, it, it all lines up nicely. Uh, so um, you know, stoked that the guys of and Benny have uh, you know have given me that opportunity to to fill some very big shoes uh, and um, and uh, you know be the custodian for their baby. <laughs> You'd, it's interesting you call it custodian of their baby because you'd never, you, you would never describe starting a nationally relevant brewery as being an easy task. But when you look at what's happened in the US with, um, you know, the, the headwinds that the craft leaders over there have sailed into, there seems to be a real challenge in having a successful brewery and taking it to, to the next level. So I'm, I, I'm actually wondering whether you guys haven't been sold the harder job. You, you, you've been sold a pup. So here, here, guys, we've got this really successful uh, growing brewery. Keep it going, you know. Uh, not at all, not at all. Um, the guys have been really deliberate uh, the whole way through their journey uh, in terms of um, building the brand, um, being patient on distribution, um, cautiously investing in capital only when we need to, um, building up the team around them so the team can actually take on um, and immerse themselves in the DNA and take ownership of it and lead everyone else around them. So building pe- building people, building capabilities in the business so that it actually happens organically. Um, and, you know, probably one of the parting uh, initiatives we've done in the last six months with Jamie involved is a, is a long-term plan for the next five years. So it's like we're all aligned on where we're going and there's great underlying momentum in the business. So we're... Um, we're up for it, aren't we, Bootsy? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I know you're up for it, but you know, it, it, there, there does seem to be that challenge of, you know, you've got launch yeah. um, and they'd, to, to take it to the next level, there seems to almost be a, um, I think in astro, in aeronautics they call it, um, you know, the, the terminal velocity or the, the velocity yeah, right. you actually escape um, the, the gravity. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there does seem to be with some of the big breweries and famously yeah. we saw it with New Belgium um, recently, you know, they took on debt and didn't mm-hmm. get the growth that they were forecasting. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, um, I'm no rocket scientist but and my feet are on the ground. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think one of the things we talk a lot about um, uh, is about building the business sustainably. Uh, and that's about having pace growth, saying no when you need to, um, and um, not overstretching the people or or the balance sheet uh, and, and the brand too fast either sometimes. So making sure we do things at the right pace is really, really important. Um, and, um, you know, it's not as if the guys have said, See you later. Out of here. And Jamie, Jamie is still he's a, he's a chairman of the ownership board. Brad and Ross are still very heavily involved in there to support us and the and the rest of the team on the journey. And over time, they've been great at creating 150 other co-owners in the business who passionately can carry the business forward. So, um, you know, and one of those things that they've drilled in with us along the way, which has been part of their journey, is you know, don't grow for growth's sake. Just do it smart. Do it in quality. Be patient. Because we're playing a long game, and um, we can afford us to make some decisions like that, and that way, we can, um, you know, as best we possibly can, avoid getting ourselves into trouble where you might be too burdened by debt, mm. or some other issue might elevate, and you have to then do a new Belgium. But at the same stage, uh, Nick, in, in a very dynamic business as craft beer is, standing still or even growing slowly can almost be the same as going backwards to, to some extent when you've got six hundred. Um, collaboration, you know, competitors, um, yep. people who are, you know, all in it together, but at the same time, potential competitors. Um, when you're no longer the sexy new um, business, 
people start seeing you everywhere and so you start wearing the stigma of being big even though you're still a fraction of what is genuinely big you've got all of you you start carrying baggage um when you're still a a relatively small business Uh, is that a challenge that you guys are going to face or are facing already look it's certainly you know we're conscious of, of those factors matt but i would argue that perhaps over the last five years stonewood has largely been out alone, you know, pushing through 8, 10, 12 million litres. Uh, and, um, you know, there's not a lot that have that have come with us uh, today with their own proprietary branding. So um, there's no particular rule book that we open each monthly meeting and say, okay, this is the next step to grow this baby to mm. 20, 40, 50 million. Um, where we know we're, we're forging new ground in this country, you know, since since Coopers did it many many years ago. Um, so that's that's really exciting, uh, and we're going to make mistakes as we go. Um, but we're also a target and a tall poppy for for lots of others, whether it be the the other craft guys or the or the big corporate guys. Uh, and that's that's okay. We just still mm. you know stick to our game, sustainable growth. We know what we're good at. Um, you know, the hottest 100 result would suggest we're, we're still doing a fair job of staying relevant uh, and um, and being, you know, and being great um, great partners of our community members and our team. Yeah, and it was only six months into our business life journey that we were told we were already too, in too many places in Brisbane. We're in five <laughs> venues. Like, you guys are everywhere. We're not putting you on tap. So it really depends on who you're talking to and, you know, what game you're playing. Um. It- Nick, you said there's, there's no rule book, and there, there isn't. Um, I'm a big believer, and there's no such thing as a great plan because it's it's all about execution. Um, and but at the same time, one of the things I've commented on the podcast in in the past is because the Australian market has been a year or two, three behind the American market. Um, Stone and Wood seems to have been very good at looking at the trends um, that have been going on in, in, in the US and seeing those headwinds hitting over there um, and almost consciously making steps to avoid some of those. And I call it the, the, the Peloton effect, you know, when you've got the, yep. the, the cyclist up front, he dodges a pothole. Everyone knows that there's a pothole coming and can be ready for it. Um, and and maybe this is a fermentum question, um, Ben, I'm not sure, but... Stonewood were very quick to start to look at diversification. You know, rather than just throwing out a an IPA, they created fixation. Um, invested in kombucha um, early um, uh, cider, and broadening the, the the base of the business without being in Stonewood was that part of that conscious um, you know, awareness that we can't grow exclusively as Pacific Ale. A little bit, a little bit about diversification, but also. Um, wanting to maintain integrity and purity of the brand it's because, you know, Stone and Wood, for example, approachable on different beers and, and and having an IPA as part of that would have been convenient just as a line extension, but it wasn't the right thing for the brand and it wasn't the right thing to seize that opportunity of IPA, IPAs emerging, uh, hence the, the birth of fixation. Um, and similar for um, Treehouse Cider, for example, so yeah, we 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 like to see ourselves as being creative uh, and still having an entrepreneurial mindset, but we'll do fit whatever what fit for purpose we'll go for. So Stone and Wood serves a certain role, as does Fixation, as does Treehouse, as does the Kombucha business, for example. So we'll stay open minded to that going forward as well. And we keep them very much to Benny's point as as single brand plays, um, so they maintain. Um, their autonomy uh, within the, the broader group uh, and hence you know my focus is is, is solely on stone and wood um, and as is our stone and wood sales team as are our marketing team etc etc so we can to Benny's point we can be pure to what we've what's got us to here and hopefully we'll continue to, to push us forward I remember speaking to uh, Tim Cooper probably a, a decade or so ago when they were trying to find a lager play, trying to find uh, you know some of the other things that they could bring in. And the explanation was, well, you know, we, we've got a, a great pale ale and we've got the sparkling ale, we've got the stout, but you need a portfolio of products. So if you want to go in, you need to solve more than one problem um, on, on, on their tap. And so they were really looking at broadening their, their selection. How important is that for Stone and Wood to have, to be able to go in and say, well, we can give you a cider, we can give you an IPA, we can give you, um, you know, uh, a, a dirty kombucha we can give you something you know well we, we go to the market with those respective products via our square keg mm-hmm. team 
um, led by Gary Hastings. He kind of looks after kind of all those new business aspects and nurturing those new brands and other things. So we have a dedicated sales force to talk to that suite of offering while uh, Nick's broader team will talk just stone and wood. Okay. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, our guys are those core threes, so Pacific Hale, the Green Coast Lager and the Cloud Catcher Pale um, is the majority of our stone and wood business. But certainly with those second and third brands in Green Coast and Cloud Catcher, we're seeing some great growth out of there. You know, we saw Cloud Catcher at, I think, 23 at Hot and Hottest 100 the other week, um, which is wonderful. So we're getting great momentum there. Um, and then we've launched the Gather in that fruit, tart and spice space. Um, and then obviously Counterculture. Um, we've relaunched in the last uh, year with some um, with some great response from the market as well. So, but they're all very much stone and wood plays. Um, so the stone and wood sales team is always on the lookout for perhaps a cider or an IPA opportunity, and then they might share that with their um, with their square keg colleague. But um, that's where um, their focus ends is very much is just stone and wood. Okay, and it wouldn't be a business advantage. What, what's the thinking behind that? It wouldn't be a business advantage to be able to go in and with a portfolio d- d- directly rather than just sort of... Oh, you could easily say, yeah, put it all together and you've got one big multi-bev business, but uh, you're at risk of um, sort of homogenizing and blending everything together. And I think you need to give the appropriate sales and marketing support especially um, to build up separate branded entities and make sure they have their own personalities and own identities and focus purely on those. Um, there's, sure, synergies if you did some stuff all together at once, but you're at risk of kind of actually losing focus for each of the individual opportunities. So we, we made the decision to keep those separate. Um, back of house, there's some stuff which obviously makes sense in finance and stuff like that, but yep. really... Um, Sales and marketing-wise, uh, we believe that they're, they're stronger if they can have their own sort of voice and identity. Stone and Wood really marked itself out. I, I wrote a piece for Flagship February recently talking about the market that Pacific Air launched into. It really was a, a, a zig when everybody mm. else was zagging um, and bringing it back down, looking at balance, looking at drinkability mm. and pioneered a market then. And uh, so it really stood out in the market and has had great growth. Has Stone and Wood reached the... That there was a great consumer insight, but mm-hmm. has Stone and Wood reached the scale now where it's a little bit harder to have a big launch like that um, and sort of come out with something? You know, so it's it's much easier to sort of have that little launch in one of the um, brew pubs, trial it, get that feedback, um, see whether you you're willing to sort of back it. Um, yeah, well, certainly staying nimble um, and staying close to our drinkers is... That's a is, much better way of putting it. Thank you for asking my question better than I did. <laughs> there you go. Four <laughs> years of wasted time at uni. I thought it was wasted anyway. Um, you're right, mate. Um, and so that's really important to us. And we often remind ourselves, you know, you're either a, um, a small, nimble business or you're a, you're a large behemoth. Um, but don't get stuck in the middle because that's how businesses die. Um, so we... We're conscious that we're scaling. Um, however, we want to stay nimble. So if we see an opportunity, we can react on it. We can get a product to market in in a matter of you know weeks rather than you know we've lived through the lives in big businesses of multiple years. Uh, and we think you know Pacific Air was perhaps born out of the that um, opportunity. Um, and we'll make sure our you know other beers we subsequently launch, um, we continue to use that competitive advantage that we have of being being close and being small enough. To, to see something at perhaps it's in the US at CBC in coming months or somewhere else and go, you know what, that's an opportunity. Let's get something in tank. Um, so it works for us. Yeah, and there's, you don't get too many Pacific Ales in your lifetime. You know, there's not many, like Nick said earlier, brands or breweries per se who have punched through the sort of 12 million litre market and kept going. And um, so, uh, you know, it suggests that it's... Um, it still does resonate really well and is a highly relevant brand in its own right uh, with drinkers and yet there's still so many people who've never tried it. So, you know, it, it does enter a new phase in its in its life cycle where we're actually, it's not just about building distribution, it's actually about continually to introduce it to more drinkers over time and keep building that brand steadily and keep supporting it. At the same time, you know, that's a slightly more scale game, in our, you know, relative to the rest of the world, but um, we've got to be, Playing that game, but also being nimble, experimenting, experimenting, and um, and nurturing other little things along the way, and hopefully we'll you know cast the fishing line out and catch another great fish at some stage in a different direction with a bit of zigzagging as well along the way. 
What role does the the growing hospitality focus? Um, you, you've got the Byron Bay um, Brewhouse, you've got the uh, Brewhouse here, you've got Fixation in Melbourne. What role does that play in staying nimble in, in, in the market? It certainly gives us a good read on what drinkers are saying and, and what they're like, and we can see those numbers you know, on a weekly basis, what's, what's pulling through. Um, but, you know, we're very conscious that they are a, a marketing exercise for Stone and Wood brand and in the case of, of Melbourne for, for fixation. Um, so we don't necessarily want them to be huge brew pubs pulling huge volume. They're an opportunity to connect with drinkers and educate them um, and then get them out into to venues that pour our beers um, to to enjoy them in, in volume with food, entertainment, etc., etc. all things we consciously don't offer um, but um, are certainly relevant uh, in, in in other types of venues so they play an increasingly relevant role uh, is the answer and we control we control things that um, we typically might not launch nationally in first hit but um, and we've ever got our league of extraordinary brewers internally and we've got some great internal competition where it might be the customer service team or the finance team or everyone brews beers or a lot of passionate home brewers um, and you get some real gems fall out of that and then we have an unofficial pipeline um, of, well, what might we do next? We might do it in the pilot kit uh, in Byron uh, and get a dozen kegs out of that, put that in the tap room for two weeks, rest it for six months, and then let it bubble from there. So if you like, we have an MPD pipeline, which is a, it's a dirty word. We wouldn't use that out of corporate land. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's artificial on the back of a coaster, and uh, it seems to work quite well for us. So it sounds like a lot of small brands that don't have a distribution footprint. Their tap room is a financial lifeline for them. You know, cash flow, immediate pay. It sounds like the um, venues are much less that for you, and it's it's much more a, a touch point for consumers yeah, we're still to relate to the brand. A bit more about the hospitality side of things, and and yeah, seeing some of the benefits of what you just mentioned. But yeah, fundamentally, it's about connection with the drinker, and and um, you know, Stone and Wood sees itself first and foremost as a regional regional brewer so having a footprint in Brizzy was like the you know the obvious next step for us and it's a great way to build a direct have a direct conversation with a drinker Byron gets a lot of visitors from tourists and some may have heard of Pacific Ale some may not a lot of them have never heard of Green Coast or Cloudcatcher or The Gatherer so it's a great opportunity to actually build awareness and a trial of some of your brands Green and Coast. tell the story you know and yeah. I was just going to say Green Coast is one of the most underrated beers in the country for mine. So oh, it's, uh, I'm with you on that, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I, I find myself drinking much more of that than Pacific yeah. these days. Uh, it's amazing uh, how many people you say hear that, actually. Yeah. yeah. yeah just, Will we see more venues? Is, is, as Stone and Wood grows, are we going to see the need for more touch points to sort of keep that relevance in, in, I mean, in the water? There's no area? rapid rollout plan, but um, you know we would like to see more in our backyard for sure, yeah. Probably Sunny Coast is something we'd love to be at at some stage. Talk to us about beer styles um, and and where you see the, the the market going. We've seen, you know, Stonewood has jumped on some of the uh, the, the the trends with um, maple syrup beers and sort of a, a whole lot of interesting things that are great for engagement. Do you see those as a passing fad, or do you think that there will be a, a, a continuation of that style of? I don't want to. I want to find mm. a term that's not particularly because <laughs> my, my next question is whether we're trivialising the, the, the beer segment. Yeah, see, we, we obviously those things you mentioned came under the counterculture yeah. brand, and that that that's you know counterculture for us is it's about scratching our creative itch, but also talking to those drinkers and 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 the customers in the trade who are really at the the sharper end of what's going on and really like to explore across different beer styles and we like to throw something different out there so um they get they get probably more noise than 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 they are in terms of scale in the in the end of the day in business and volume and forward-looking strategy but they're about having fun and, and building connection with mm-hmm. that which is ultimately a smaller group of drinkers out there um Whereas is you know the, there's another bunch of drinkers out there who are after some flavoursome approachable refreshment you know yeah. where continuing to build your Pacific Ales and your Green Coasts play a huge role um, and uh, but I think what's interesting in the market now is just the, the hybridisation that's happening across different categories and you know, we we're part of that obviously with the um, 
lovely bubbly when we used Chardonnay juice and champagne yeast. To- Again, and, and one of the beers I've seen the most positive response for from last year. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So a lot, of, a lot of the people who are interested in something new and different are loving that kind of stuff. Whereas, again, on the other hand, some drinkers who have been drinking uh, a lager most of their life actually actually having quite a good journey on just a pale ale or a, or a Pacific ale. So it, it's sort of you're walking two lines there, I think. Um, but beer needs to keep reinventing itself a little bit, I think, going forward. You know, Keeping in mind, though, that one of its core jobs to do with a drinker is refreshment. Yeah. Yeah, we've got an important role to play um, as a leader in that craft space to to actually keep that category growing and, and healthy. And, and obviously by volume, we've seen it drop off a lot over the last decades. Um, so, you know, we find um, ourselves taking some pressure on board to actually try and play a role in reversing that and, and growing engagement, um, um, whether it be with new drinkers or, you know, or females, etc., and those who t- might not look traditionally like beer, um, you know, we see... Um, that's certainly part of our role is to is to get them into the category to the broader benefit of everybody. One of the things I was very critical about in the um, you know, sort of first decade of, of this century, uh, you know, the twenty tens, oh, the two thousands. I'm not sure how to refer to it. Was the whole push for low carb beers, and it wasn't the the, the, the flavour and thing, but it was the, the the way that they were positioned as being the healthy beer or the, the the beer if you were conscious of not putting on weight when. It wasn't entirely a true selling. Um, it played to a negative perception about beer that wasn't entirely well founded and wasn't entirely true. And I always worried that it was going to have a big blowback longer term because you're saying, well, yes, these beers will make you fat, and these are the ones to drink if you don't. And you know, I think to some extent that has occurred now, where we're seeing the, the, the wellness trend and beer is being held as the alcohol that's bad for you. Um, is there a risk with the noise that some of these more novel beers, you know, pastry stouts and, and things like that, because they do get so much attention and craft beer does have a bit of a perception to it already that it can trivialise the category and it can sort of hurt beer or craft beer longer term because it's seen as a bit of a, a, a novelty that can be easily dismissed to the broader market? Well, I think... Um, perhaps it is novelty in some way and, and purposely in some cases, but it, it garners attention um, and it might get some industry media, but then it gets some mainstream media. And, and again, if it gets someone to explore that category in their local bottle shop that they wouldn't normally walk over to those fridges, then I think that's a win. Um, are some of them hugely sessionable? Um, no, but um, again, I think it's engagement and that's that's very much what we're trying to, to drive there. Um, and I think beer has a different definition for everybody um so to actually to try and make it generic is to you know and once upon a time you know our fathers and grandfathers were like you know this is vb this is calendar draft this is the definition of beer um i think times have changed and that's that's probably a good thing and and i guess i'm not talking about hybridized you know beer wine blends or things like that but it's the things that do you know whale vomit um as an ingredient and some it of those no things. one any favors you know they, they're wild and wacky doesn't really hold the category on, on large. There's a limit, isn't there? Uh, yeah. yeah. So and it's always trying to work out where that line is. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but it, um, you know, and I think we, we sit from a perspective of we need to have a range of beers which talks to all different types of drinkers out there and that um, the whale vomits of the world aren't necessarily going to pay the bills for 150 families in our in our brewery So, <laughs> and all that provides sustainable growth over time. So I think it really depends on which but it shows you can be down with the kids and you know and, and it gets you the headlines which is you know it's that quick sugar rush of attention um, i think there's enough there's enough really good craft breweries out there now who are building strong brands who are cutting through that and i think you you walk into a bottle shop or a bar and you'll see consistent ranging and clear branding and they're starting to communicate so they're slowly building brands are starting to happen it's not just a, a, a merry-go-round of wacky stuff the big trend that we've seen um, that's caused all of the discussion uh, in, in the US over the last year is the hard seltzer market. You know, it, is that something yeah. we're going to sort of see uh, the either stone and wood or the the, the broader? Trips? Like you look at you know again, everyone's looking across the US, and it's not just a two or three year lag now. It's 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 almost instantaneous. Uh, I was lucky enough to be at the craft brewers conference um, last year, and you know it was coming up really quickly like and there was only a few players then and 
you know, we, we, we talked to Oscar Blues at the time. We were in the Hemingway Brewery Tour and they just launched Wild Basin and that had gone to their third largest skew in four months, for example. So it was just going gangbusters. And I sat in on a growing into the headwinds uh, panel discussion and uh, there was Matt from Firestone Walker and a couple others, including one of the founders from uh, Russian River. And um, those two in particular were still sitting on the fence. So they were kind of taking the more purist route saying, oh, you know, it's not beer, you know, we're sticking to beer and all those kind of things. But, you know, I think Firestone Walker just had 805 Lager just going gangbusters Correct. and they couldn't keep capacity. Up. <laughs> Whereas a lot of other brewers did have capacity and they're kind of pushing it out there. So I think this will be one, I mean, there's going to be a tsunami of seltzers coming for sure. And, um, you know, it's going to, whether that water subsides around the consumers or it sits at a high level and stays will depend on how well it resonates with the drinkers, whether they understand what it is and they like the flavour and does the job for them. Mm-hmm. But one thing's for sure, there's going to be a heck of a lot of them coming. Will one of them be coming from... We're having a look at it for sure. Having a look at it. So Yeah. 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 But not, not from a stone of wood point of view. It doesn't have a play there. Yep. So, But certainly in that new business portfolio that Gary runs so well in Square Keg, um, that's where um, it would logically fit where we to go down that track. So we won't have uh, water from Watergo, you know, alcoholic water from Watergo or something like that. Or I was trying to think of a seltzer from S uh, somewhere down that way, but I couldn't yeah, think of anything. Yeah, so. yeah. No, no, it's it's a bit of fun. I mean, if you look at the category over there, it's like made a huge impact. So you go, well, hmm. probably worth listening to that. Let's have a think about what that might mean for us. But um, we're, we're more passionate about what else hasn't been done before as opposed yeah. to uh, adapting something that's yes. working somewhere else. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you start seeing um, a, a brand, you know, whether it's a stone of wood or the, the, the broader fermentum businesses becoming multi-beverage companies, mm. uh, which was one of the terms that CUB used. Uh, Sends a shiver down oh, some people's well, Don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and, and, and on one hand, you know, again, you, you need to sort of step back and to say from a business point of view, you need to buttress your core business and make sure that you've got all of these other things because we've got a responsibility to employees and so they're purely business decisions mm. but do some of those decisions to become broader beverage companies um, hurt the emotional investment that consumers have in craft beer and you know, that's was- exactly why we're keeping stone and wood separate you know a lot of us have lived through a multi-beverage day uh, at, at the big house years ago and you had um sales reps walking in who are used to taking uh, an order for pallet loads of VB trying to sell in some wine all of a sudden. It just yeah. didn't work. You want a bottle of Grange with that. And, and, <laughs> and the call site, you know, you go into the, the venue or, or the bottle shop and the list of things you need to talk through is not practical. So that is a couple of reasons why we're keeping it separate, but that emotional one you talk to and you know, keeping some of those plays pure and separate is really important. Okay. I just suddenly realised that we're coming up to 45 minutes. So we'll um, talk uh, Hottest 100. You, you, you mentioned that despite the growth that Stonewood's had, its popularity, its availability, still managed to come out as uh, number one, um, which is obviously a great testament. But it was obviously something that mattered to you as a business. We talked a little bit about this on the live podcast, mm. uh, but it was obviously something that as a business, it mattered to you. There was a big investment, I think, the day that Bolter sold, we first started seeing... Just coincidence, mate. Coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there, there was a, like something came up in my There's Facebook There's so feed. much pride in the business yep. from all our team and we don't set up to win awards and we particularly much prefer to win beer awards as opposed to a popularity contest. But, um, you know, there's pride in the place so to 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 take that out and is there was a there was a good feeling in the brewery that day you know yep. it was a good 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 vibes few high fives few cheers uh it was good fun and that's what i think this contest is it raises a bit of profile for the industry and it's good fun to be part of um but at the end of the day it's thirty thousand votes and there's probably 13, 14 million yeah. beer drinkers out there. So. But it's 30,000 votes from highly invested beer drinkers mm. so who are, I guess, opinion leaders. Mm. And uh, and it's easiest to say, look, you know, it matters. Like we're, we're source of pride. But um, I've seen, you know, sponsored posts in drinks industry magazines. Yeah, mm. I think anyone who works in the industry would have seen the, the headlines that you'd won. But you've still, still followed that up with a little bit of um, sort of sponsored content in uh, publications to remind people that you were number one. So obviously it's not just a little bit of pride. Mm there's you know, a, a business outcome for you as a well. A little bit from a trade perspective, uh, mate, um, but not necessarily from a drinker perspective. You know, you, you're not going to see a decal in a, in a pub with Pacific Ale and then, 
you know, a tap talker saying, you know, number one, hottest 100, that's, you know, that's a bit in your face. That's, that's not our style. Um, so, yes, relevant to a degree for trade, um, but from a drinking point of view, it's lovely when they discover it. Um, uh, but we're conscious that a lot, of, a lot it might not be relevant to. They go, well, what's hottest 100? I thought it was on Triple J, you know, music. Um, so we're, um, we're tactful about how we might get a bit of leverage out of it. It's interesting you say we wouldn't sort of display it on a tap deck or anything like that. Um, the independence logo is something you proudly display in in, in, in that space. So Absolutely. being an independent brewery is more important than being the most popular brewery. Um, I or, think that's or, fair. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we've got a lot more planned in, in that regard too. You know, it's a great, um, it's a great community. Um, we're very proud to play a leading role uh, in it. Uh, and I think really we've only scratched the surface um, as to um, drinker awareness um, and even trade to, to that point. So many I speak to have never seen uh, the logo and they don't appreciate the difference between uh, an independent um, and, a, and a corporate brewery. Um, so I think as an industry body, we've got a lot to do there and, and Benny and I and, and the founders still have some involvement in those as well to, to actually grow the whole franchise for, for indie beer. So I, I don't expect you to give me any uh, scoops or insights uh, for, for what you've got sort of in the tanks at the moment. Um, you'll have a media plan for that. But just generally, what are we going to see from Sonam Wood and Fermentum over the course of 2020? You know, what, what, sort of, what are the key trends that you guys are identifying that you'll be looking to? We talk a lot at the moment about consolidating a lot of the core business we've built. We're still early, early days on building a lot of those brands. And Nick mentioned Green Coast and Cloudcatcher, for example. We only really started giving them more oxygen in the last year or so because we've been capacity constrained with Pacific Ale. So it's like we've, we're, we're doing a steady work on building those brands up and, and consolidating what we've put in place so far um, without trying to spread ourselves too thinly. And the same situation with, with, with uh, Fixation, uh, with Tommy leading the charge there, uh, and also Treehouse Cider. So a lot of consolidation, but of course we'll keep innovating on the smaller end to see what tickles their fancy for the future. I know that I asked this on the Hottest 100, but in all of the kerfuffle, I can't remember what the number was, but what percentage is Pacific Ale in terms of the, the, the Stone and Wood volume, Nick? Oh, mate, we're sitting in roughly in the 80s okay. uh, at this point in time, and that's that's progressively coming down. Um, we're also conscious um, we could get it into the 60s if we took our foot off Pacific Ale, and, um, but we don't want to do that. So we're, we're giving it and the other two beers that make up you know, our core three um, plenty of oxygen and, and grow them all concurrently. And I think naturally Pacific Ale will, will probably finish somewhere, or well, probably never finish, but somewhere probably about three quarters of our, of our stone and wood brand would be, a, would be a nice position for us to be in a few years. Um, and that'll be achieved by some ongoing strong growth of, of Pacific Ale, but also um, some more rapid growth on Green Coast and Cloudcatcher Pale. How hard is that from a business point of view? You've got a very strong flagship that you're known for. Um, in fact, people, uh, when I've done activations of craft beer and I've had uh, stone and wood on, they just sort of ask for a stone and wood and just sort of say, well, which one? We've got three. Yes. Um, but Pacific Island stone and wood are so closely associated. How hard is it to keep the momentum going for Pacific Ale but bring in Green Coast and bring in um, Cloudcatcher and give them a little bit of love? From an execution point of view? Um, there, there's some education certainly of, of the road crew um, but we're, we're really conscious that Pacific Ale is not necessarily the beer for everybody um, so while we've certainly done a great job in satisfying that market um, that those who are looking for a lager in that Heller style or, you know, or a pale ale we didn't have a, a really strong offer for them previously so um, that's that's completely new space for us and that we've only, as Benny suggested, we've really only scratched the surface of taking those brands out for a for a spin around the block, if you like, um, and and giving them the, the oxygen they need to, to grow and fulfil their potential. Just uh, in asking that question, you know, thinking of the, the tap situation where if a venue's got 10 taps, percentage of those are going to be contracted. Um, if there's one, you know, Pacific Ale is often the one independent tap you'll see when, when you walk into a pub. Um, if you've only got the opportunity for, for, for one tap, do you just default to Pacific Ale? Or you know, do, do you just say, well, we, we want to give the lager a little bit of a push, so we'll put, encourage them to put that on? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, mate, but the answer is it's Pacific Ale. You know, the, 
the the, the drinker relevance um, and engagement with the brand um, and just the VPO that um, the beer does uh, far exceeds our other brands. Volume per outlet. Yep, sorry, volume per outlet. Yes, another bloody acronym. Um, <laughs> I just I have to sort of do the uh, translation the for, for, the, uh, yep. for the listeners at home. Uh, that, one, that one's stuck. Uh, it also depend on, on, on what venue, though, right? So, but yes, by and large, um, yeah, drive Pacific Ale uh, as a priority, but not every venue uh, has that set of consumers. A more poignant venue goes, well, no, we don't want Pacific Ale. We'll have we'll have something from Counterculture, for example. So it's, but by and large, yeah, priority Pacific Ale, and if we can manage to get a, a second tap, then you know it's an arm wrestle usually between Green Coast and Cloudcatcher. Yeah, depending on the geography. Are you finding that venues are saying that, you know, the line or your former employers is wanting to put 150 lashes on and, or you can't have Pacific Ale or, you know, we want to put Four Pines Pacific Ale on um, and you're, you're sitting on the same bank of taps as another Pacific Ale? Yeah, you, you do get that in some venues, um, absolutely. And um, competition's a good thing. So we've got we've got no problem with it. And if, if in their portfolios of, you know, 80 different beers, um, they don't have another option other than another Pacific Ale, then that's, um, that's up to them. A little bit of snark in that? No, not at all, <laughs> not, not at all. I wish I'd have got the expression as you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it came through in the voice. I'll let the listeners decide that. But are you finding, again, having worked for the big house and sort of been involved in, you know, sort of saying, well, business is business, we're going to sort of lock down taps. Do, do you have a slightly different opinion about things like tap contracts as you're working for a company that's trying to sort of prize publicans out of that model like the other 700 breweries craft breweries in the country we're just trying to get on as many taps as we can we're in the right kind of places and each each um, venue operator is different some are contracted some aren't some want a basic offering some want a more diverse offering i think it's horses for courses and we're just trying to get where we can in the right time and right place. Um, we don't play the contract game. Um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't actually coming yeah. in ahead from that point of view, but it's more a case of do you find yourself sort of arming your sales reps to go in and tell the complete opposite of what you once told <laughs> the same publicans um, in, in championing the stone and wood cause? Oh, they're not quite as wonderful as we once <laughs> thought they were, I bet it, let's face it. I mean, I remember when they started – Crikey, it was about 1999 uh, in Sydney when we at CUB were locking in taps for the Olympics and, and, and venues. and Pushing Fosters back uh, then? Great product, <laughs> um, absolutely. And um, they really, um, my, my history ends there, but um, my understanding was that was sort of the start of that way of doing business. And what we're doing now is having to re-educate the trade that actually um, at the right wholesale price, um, uh, with the right sell price that, you know, um, a great independent beer can often be more profitable uh, for a venue than a contracted beer with um, with a nice rebate paid each quarter. Um, net, net them out. Um, actually, whether it be our Pacific Ale or, or any other beer can actually be as or, or more profitable. And that's just an education process we need to work through uh, with the trade to, to try and undo the all the damage we did 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the... It's interesting you talked about that, about the profitability, because it's one of the things that I've been looking into. And when you're lucky enough to see the the wholesale cost, the the, the invoice cost of um, beers from some of the, the, the larger breweries, it's at a par or sometimes significantly more expensive than the um, list price from Stone and Wood. Um, and yet they get their anything up to $2 a litre rebate back, you know, $3 a litre on occasions. Um, and yet the price that the consumer pays is often calculated on the invoice price. So there should actually be a you know, much bigger difference. I'm sort of one, you know, it, it almost... Whilst the Atropos has found that they're anti, they're not anti-competitive. It does seem to be costing the consumer more. We don't control price, yeah. So um, that's ultimately up to the the bottle shop owner or the venue operator what they charge for mm. it. So, but again, look, that that's it is one of those hidden costs, and it was, it was something that sort of came up is that publicans can actually make a better margin um, by charging more by the provenance of the brand and those sorts of things, and the, the beer is often cheaper. It, it, but is that coming out of the can? consumer's pocket uh perhaps in some cases i think different customers different trade 
um, utilize their their funds in different way. You know, some I think are, include um, a rebate or some type of kickback in their ultimate LUC and they reflect that in their retail price. Others not, and they might use that to pay down debt and they skive it off to another account or what have you. It's been my experience. Well, um, except a trip to the Melbourne Cup. Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, and that's their, that's their prerogative. Um, but yeah, we just. We don't spend much time on it, to be honest, mate. We just we just focus on great beer um, at a at a really fair price that can be sold at a price that delivers a great margin um, to to the trade and you know the the proofs in the pudding over the last ten eleven years. I think that's as uh, good a place as anywhere to leave it. Nick, Ben, thank you very much for for joining us on Beer as a Conversation, and all the best for Stonewood for twenty twenty. A pleasure. Thanks for having us, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. And that was Ben Summons and Nick Boots. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryer Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryer Malt are dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. Your premium brewing partner and proud sponsors of Brews News. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au.